1: Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation about the Disney animated canon in chronological order where we do our best to play our part in a healthy ecosystem of art and criticism and fandom, putting things into dialogue with one another, and hopefully enriching the experience of these animated films. Uh, We're interested in how these movies move us and shape our imaginations. Today we are discussing the 17th film in the canon and a personal favorite of mine, 1961's 101 Dalmatians. This movie is vibrant. It's full of vitality. Animation has been called The Illusion of Life, and boy is that in full view here. There's a fairly simple plot, but it's powered by an engine that rivals Cruella's roaring automobile. And of course, it's the first feature made fully with the new Xerox technology, new at the time, Xerox technology, which gives it a very different aesthetic from anything we've seen so far, which I'm sure we will talk about. Uh, who is the we? Well, I'm Josh altman and joining me always is a man who once upon a time led a downright dull bachelor life writing songs, songs about romance, of all things, something he knew absolutely nothing about. Hi, Michael. Hi, <laughs> Josh. It's <that's> very accurate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> More accurate than some of the ones that I've said about you, I think. <laughs> the one that I always think of is uh, you asking me if, uh, if if you could call me Flower. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that was early on. I, I um, hadn't quite got the hang of this yet. So, uh, yeah, so I thought we'd jump in with just some impressions on this one, because, man, I love this movie. And Me I just too. I. Yeah. I, and so, yeah, I don't know if you um, what, what do you uh, what do you want to say about it? Just off the, you know, just just overall impressions, I guess. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, so so the the Xerox what's xerography is I think is I think how you pronounce it um gives this movie a really weird kind of dirty look that really really suits the vibe of the movie and especially the setting uh which is uh 19 early 1960s late 1950s London so you get a kind of smoggy feel without them having to actually animate any smog just because of the way the animation looks. It's, it, it seems uh, simultaneously more modern and more dated than uh, than Sleeping Beauty does. And Sleeping Beauty feels outside of time in some way because it uses this very stylized animation in service of this kind of medieval tapestry look that we talked about a couple of months ago. Uh, 101 Dalmatians feels very much like a product of its time, and so it feels very hip in some ways because in some ways the 1960s are still our idea of what hipness is. Um, but also it, it, it seems like it's very firmly planted in its time as opposed to Sleeping Beauty. I think if you showed Sleeping Beauty to a lot of people, they might not know when it was made. If you showed uh, 101 Dalmatians to them, I, I'm pretty sure everybody's going to read it as late 50s, early 60s. Uh, and that's not a complaint, but it does make it a very, very different kind of movie than Sleeping Beauty.
1: Yeah, I think the uh, Sleeping Beauty comparison is is. An interesting one, because we talked about in in the Sleeping Beauty episode how some of the animators really hated working on it. They just didn't feel like they could get the life out of uh, that highly stylized sort of drawing that they were doing, which is ironic because... um, Walt Disney himself wanted it to kind of be his magnum opus. He was, like, really going for, you know, that ultimate realism that he had pursued and, you know, uh, you know, from the very beginning with Snow White and stuff. And he was saying, you know, he, he wants to see, like, the flesh and blood of, of the characters, um, whereas I feel like this one um, is so much more vibrant and alive than, than Sleeping Beauty, even though, obviously, the style is is completely different and only a couple years apart, which is also very interesting. You have the same people working on, on these things and and coming up with this very different, different look and different feel.
0: I'm interested that you would call it more vibrant because to me, this is such a subdued movie visually. I mean, there's some, there's some crazy act action sequences. And of course, at one point you've got more than a hundred Dalmatians on screen at once. So I, I don't mean to say that it's dull, but the colors are so muted. It's it's there's so much black and white in this movie um, that I'm not sure vibrant is the word I would use for it.
1: You know, that's I I um I think part of it is that that muted look, but like it still it pops so much mm-hmm. because the because it is the black and white against these um, varied colored backgrounds, and the the backgrounds are um, I really love the backgrounds. They they're painted too. by. Um, a guy named Walt Paraguay and he—I think he does some amazing color work. You're right that the, the colors are more muted, but they still—I um, don't—I I don't have another word besides that pop. Like they still just pop off the off the screen, even though they're they're muted, and and particularly. Um, they're not particularly realistic in all the places, like, and sometimes they're, they're quite unrealistic. Um, he has you know, a lot of purples and, and uh, reds uh, that he uses throughout the film. There's the, there's the scene when they're all escaping from the farmhouse in particular where just mm-hmm. everything is, has gone red. And I, just, I, I don't know. I think that's where I'm, I'm seeing that, that vibrant sort of look.
0: Yeah, and I'm, yeah, I, I agree. The backgrounds in this are are really lovely, and they're they're very different from the backgrounds in the decade before this, um, and they they really fit the the setting of this movie. I really can't say that enough. This if this movie doesn't make you want to visit pre swinging London, I don't know what will.
1: Yeah, I think the the backgrounds and the 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 foregrounds blend here nicer than anything they've really made, and that that was. That was because of that Xerox technology that um, the, the background artist, uh, Ken Anderson, who did a lot of the line work on it over, um, over Walt Paraguay's paintings, um, he, he purposely made it that that same xerox style so that you have both the foreground and the background in that xerox style where we've talked about this a little bit in the past like there's there's always kind of been that push and pull tension between the conceptual art the background art the the foreground art and getting them all to blend together nicely and i feel like uh because of the 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 technology they're able to nail it
0: yeah and and we, we also talked about how they do something similar on Sleeping Beauty that the character design in Sleeping Beauty is meant to match the backgrounds, and yet the way it matches the backgrounds is very, very different than than how it how it's done in this movie. So yeah, it's it is it's weird to think of these two movies being back to back because they are really outrageously different. They, they they have very little in common in terms of vibe or look or anything else and yet they're back to back and i would say two of the most beloved entries in the canon i uh, you're not alone in loving 101 dalmatians for sure
1: that vitality sort of feel from is because it's kind of like it's so different from sleeping beauty in a like um i don't know that sort of like I don't I like you used the word hip earlier. It is like it's like a rock and roll to like (laughs) classical like something, you know? Like like there's something beautiful about um you know whatever music, but then like there's just something different about like that sort of like kick you in the pants, like in your face. Um and I just feel like this movie is much more that. Um just the way it looked, you know.
0: And and I think if you think about the way it's scored, there's still quite a bit of orchestral stuff. But this kind of has a jazz score. Certainly the, yeah. the opening titles and the, the music is jazzy in a way. I'm, I'm trying to think if anything else we've looked at has had a jazz score like this. Maybe Lady in the Tramp had a little bit of that. Um, yeah. The, the other thing worth pointing out is this is the first movie... Uh, it's the second movie to take place in modern times. It's the first movie that had to take place in modern times. So, uh, Dumbo is technically set in 1940. Uh, is that it, is it 41? Whenever the movie came out. But Dumbo could just as yeah. easily take place in the 19th century. This has to take place at the exact time when it takes place uh, because of some of the pop cultural references and things like that. So, yeah. they needed a new look. Um, and they needed a new sound, and and it worked really well. It, it's interesting. We, we keep we keep talking about xerography. Do you want to um, explain what 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 on earth we're talking about?
1: Yeah, I, yeah. We should spend a little bit of time on that because I I do think that there's um, beyond the actual uh, technology itself. There's maybe an interesting discussion to be had here, just in the you know the push and pull and tension between art and technology and uh, and just broader like I, I feel like. Um, that broader, like, you're trying to appeal to people, and then, like, like, all, all those things kind of have attention that are always at work within these Disney movies. Um, but anyway, the, the, the technique itself, basically, is that, um, what had been done prior, um, was the artist would, would sketch these drawings, and then it would go to the ink department, and the ink department was, um, this very arduous task of basically painting over the original artist's um, lines, and they would they would paint it all onto the cell. That would then be um, filmed, and and that become the film. Uh, what the Xerox did was it it eliminated that inking process, so that they could go directly from the uh, the sketch pad to the cell without you know having to have it retraced um, by hand. Um, what that and and doing that with a xerox machine very much like a like a photocopier um although a very um a, a, like a very different than what we have today like same same idea but it was uh in the documentary i was watching it was like a three room system you know oh. <laughs> um it is really fascinating how these things change but anyway um yeah so they would put the sketches directly into this thing and then um but what that required then was that the the, the the lines be a little darker and thicker so that the machine would pick it up and it also takes away it makes everything at this stage in the technology have to be outlined in black whereas if you look in the previous films the outlines will change colors because the painters can paint them whatever color they want to to get those to get those outer lines so it really changes the look of the um, of the drawings in that way
0: yeah and 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 it's interesting. They're gonna they're gonna keep using xerography all the way through the late eighties. I think Little Mermaid might be the f- no. It's Rescuers Down Under is the the first use of um, computer uh, aided animation um, in in Disney. And. uh, Right. I think if they had begun this process with anything other than 101 Dalmatians, it would have been seen as really jarring because it, it's so different and and in a lot of ways it's it's less appealing, but it works so well for the setting of this movie uh, that I, I think if you just watched them in order and you weren't doing what we're doing and and looking for uh, looking for stuff to talk about, I, I think you would just see it as something that. Fits the movie, and then by the time you get to *Sword in the Stone*, a few years later, you this has become the Disney style, and it's less jarring. So I, I don't know if they thought that out, uh, or if it just happened to fall down that way. But *101 Dalmatians* really is the best way in the Disney canon to introduce xerography.
1: Uh, right. I think uh, it was interesting. Brad Bird, who's a you know he's a you know pretty well known animation director now. He's done he he did *The Incredibles* and um i don't know a bunch of pixar stuff but um he he said it the way he said it was it forced them to make a lot of really good choices <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, just, I just love that phrasing um but yeah you're right like the the fact that it was dalmatians it kind of um you know and they're black and white like it makes it less you know of a I like, jarring like you said you know like or it's less stark in, in some ways um this this jump and i think that's really interesting the way that the technology and the the story um can mesh in that way and how much it's thought of and how much it just come it, it reminded me of our conversation last month where we were talking about the children chanting um different poems and like where do these or you know where do these chants come from you know uh like it's just kind of in the atmosphere in a way right and like but it it comes out um steven johnson talks about it in the um like this idea that the world kind of prepares itself for an idea to come to fruition, and mm-hmm. that that people can only think of the adjacent possible as the way, is the term that he uses. So you you can you can't think however many steps ahead. You can only like see what's around you and then kind of imagine the next the step in it. You know, I think there there's something really interesting here with the fact that they did do 101 dalmatians and where exactly like that idea came from or 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 how you know like it's not a clear line that you can say oh they yeah they saw they had this technology and therefore they made this movie but they as you said like they mesh together so perfectly that it's it's kind of that adjacent possible
0: idea and 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 again they have to do it because sleeping beauty almost bankrupts the company a common right, yeah. theme with these these early (laughs) movies they'll make something super super uh ambitious uh which will flop or i mean sleeping beauty is the second highest grossing movie of 1959 and yet it still doesn't make back all the money they spent on it because it's so detailed um it'll it'll flop and then the the studio will almost die and it'll have to come out with a cheapie that uh that people love and it becomes a hit and so you saw that with dumbo after Fantasia, yeah. almost bankrupted the studio. And uh, and here we are again with 101 Dalmatians. Right. So you
1: have these, like, these, um, that's what I meant, that tension earlier. Like, you have these different constraints coming in from different sides. You have the constraints of the technology, you have the constraints of the money. Uh, you actually see the same thing uh, with the the next big technology jump, I guess, in the 3D computer animation with Toy Story. Um like when Toy Story comes out, it's perfect that they did toys because everything that that the computer is generating at that point looks like plastic. <laughs> like, yeah. They don't. They, the technology hasn't got to a point yet where they can really do anything that doesn't look plasticky, You know. So the they they really minimize the use of the humans in that movie purposely because they don't really look right. You know, like they look plastic. They look as plasticky as the toys do. Um, and so the again the melding of those ideas. Um, it's an it's it's an interesting. Um, analog to this, I guess.
0: We've talked about this before, about how art really does require limits, that that once you have boundaries, you're able to make something uh, useful within the boundaries. But if you're given just total free reign, I'm not sure you can actually, I'm not sure that's actually good for art.
1: Yeah, and that's a, yeah, because then you get these, like you said you get these beloved movies out of it you know you get the dumbos of the 101 dalmatians and um even this next few in the line um i really like sword in the stone too um sword in the stone <laughs> was made i think on 40 percent of the budget of 101 dalmatians like they you know and they're still it. like they're just yeah and looks it definitely you know but there's a um i don't know there's there's still something appealing about it too so we
0: and i, I think i think we've Pretty unequivocally at least at least by the end of Hundred and One Dalmatians*, entered Disney's dark age. Which is not to say that nothing in the next two decades is is good or worth talking about. I mean, I love *The Jungle Book* and I love *Robin Hood*, uh, w- both of which belong to the '60s '70s period of of relatively bad animation. So so we're we're entering the dark age, and and one thing you're going to see over and over again is that. Uh, they're reusing animation, and I, I noticed that here that there's a shot of Pongo, who I think he gets gets hit on the head or something, and that same shot's going to be reused for Baloo the bear in uh, in the Jungle Book. So
1: right. So yeah, we're entering into the height of that. The uh, the director or one of the directors on this one, the Walt Walt or what's his name, Rutherman. Um, it's not Walt. Right, don't Reiterman,
0: don't Wolfgang Reiterman.
1: Yeah, 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 Wolfgang. This is- I uh, particularly loved that, and he saw it as a, um, you know, he's tapping into his history with the company, his knowledge of these movies, like, to be able to recontextualize things. Like, so he really, um, enjoyed being able to to tap into that what he what he perceived as a strength. But, but you're right, we're we're going to see more and more of that copying, which again, some of that comes back to the technology too. You know, now it's it's much easier to uh, copy things.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and cheaper it's it's yeah. worth worth noting before we celebrate xerography too much. It put people out of work.
1: I was just gonna bring that up like do we want to talk about the social implication side because i I do think it's worth mentioning that yeah they had they had these huge inking departments, as I was talking about before, like it's painstaking to you know to retrace and repaint all these things, and so they'd have these rooms just mostly of of women or maybe entirely of women. I don't know um. I've like I think they put four hundred and fifty or five hundred people out of work. Um, yeah, it's something, uh, and something is is lost in that in the just in the human side of things, right?
0: And 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 in the art, I mean, this is very stylized. It looks kind of cool. Maybe maybe you could you maybe you could say beautiful in some cases, but I I think it's going to be very difficult to argue that the traditional method as a whole is not better looking than the xerography method as a whole.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I I think it's – I want to be a little careful not to – and I, not that you're doing this, but just in my own head, not to to set up a like a false dichotomy, like it has to be one or the other, or like one is against the other. Um, although in the in this case, <laughs> it really it is turn out that way. It really is because they went to the Xerox method because it was cheaper, and then therefore they eliminated their entire inking department. Which... Never
0: looked back. They never, as far as I know, they never did another movie in the old way.
1: Right. And uh, and unfortunately, that I mean, a lot of that comes down to. Walt Disney himself who like he just he'd really we've we've talked about this for the last 10 episodes maybe I don't know like he's just lost interest in the animation and he feels enough of an attachment because it's like his roots it's where he came from that every time it kind of comes to the point where he's going to like just shutter the whole thing and, and shut it all down he he won't um so he's still like he lets it live but that's about all he's doing is just letting it live like uh I, I was looking at the 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 film releases from Disney, and I think between um, Sleeping Beauty and this one, there was like eleven live action releases, and then there's another like seventeen live action releases between this one and um, Sword in the Stone. Like Holy cow. the money, the money is just not going towards the animation, you know, and it's not making the money either, you know. Like the the live action, I think is is um, you know cheaper to make in, in a lot of ways and so that's why they do it. But
0: and, and, and I mean, also and, the animation schedule slows down. So it's 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 gonna right. be another two years to Sword in the Stone, cool. But then it's four years to the Jungle Book. And I, I we worked this out. I think there's only six movies in the entirety of the nineteen sixties and seventies.
1: Yeah, it really slows down after um Yeah, there's three in the sixties. And then is there three in the seventies maybe? I don't Winnie know. Winnie the Pooh, which um, is
0: not really a movie. Winnie the is a collection of shorts. Uh, yeah. uh, 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 I can't even think. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just, I'm just stumbling inarticulately. Uh, the Robin Hood and then uh, the Aristocats. Yeah. So it is six so. and six and a half. Because I really think thinking of Winnie the Pooh as a movie is kind of misleading.
1: Yeah, I think okay. The Rescuers is still seventies too. I yes, don't think that's,
0: that's right. The sorry, the seventies. Yeah. And and The Rescuers is widely seen as the pinnacle of the uh the xerog- xerography method um it that that's that's widely seen as the movie where they where they finally figure out how to make it beautiful again that's not my memory of the rescuers but i haven't seen that movie in a long time so maybe when we yeah. when we finally get to the rescuers uh i i'll agree with that
1: yeah we can talk about it when we get there but as far as the um yeah, just the draining of resources out of the animation department and into other places. Um this <laughs> this movie was really the peak. I mean like I mean they obviously they lost the inking department, but then after this movie, um uh Walt Paragoy who I who I mentioned did the backgrounds. He's got Sword in the Stone and then he's out. Bill Peet who did the story on this one um and on several of the shorts that we did last month. Um he's just a great storyteller. He's He's, he disagrees on Jungle Book and he's out. Um, uh, well, I'm sorry, Walt Paraguay, he, he goes over to the Imagineering side of things. Mark Davis, who is the, the one responsible for Cruella de Vil, just like maybe one of the best animated things that we've seen, uh, Cruella de Vil, he goes over to the Disney Imagineering side. Um, Tom Oreb, who's responsible for a lot of the character designs on these, he has, disagreements with the studio and he's out even though you, his influence continues to be seen but like I, I just think they're at their you know their height of some of these guys' talent levels and it's seen in this movie and then they're they're dispersed to the winds you know
0: and, and just, just for our listeners who don't know park. the lingo um, imagineering uh, refers to the people who work at the theme parks not people who serve you popcorn at the theme parks but the people who design the theme parks (laughs) right so so i mean that that's an interesting point that so many of these um so many of the film directors and the people who worked on the films end up abandoning the animation department to go work on the stuff in the theme parks i wonder if there's a sense in which in the 60s and 70s the truest expression of walt disney as a person and as a company belongs in disneyland and later walt disney world rather than in the in the films themselves yeah
1: well i think disney i mean walt disney himself would have said that i think you know like i think he he really saw um yeah that as as his life's work i think i don't know that or just the company as a whole, maybe, you know, but where all of his time and energy at this point is going to seems to be much more in the um, in in that area. I mean, I just read a passage out of the, the Walt Disney biography I've been reading, you know, bits and pieces of over the last couple of years as we as we do this. And, you know, as he's laying in this hospital bed um, near the end of his life and looking at the ceiling tiles, he's 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 imagining um the layout for epcot (laughs) you know and the ceiling (laughs) tiles like i mean that's just where you know i I think that's that's a sad scene but also it just speaks to where what you're saying like what's the true you know essence of this man (laughs) you know like uh if you want to if you want to be part of that vision and like yeah the theme parks is where it's at
0: and it's interesting that almost nothing from the 60s and 70s has any real presence in the theme parks uh disneyland i believe has a sword in the stone show where uh twice a day they get some five-year-old boy to pull the, the sword out and crown him king of fantasy land or whatever they don't mm-hmm. even have that at walt disney world and then um some of the some of the characters walk around although not even very many of them so i i think that division is really on display even now um between the theme parks and the and the animation department in the '60s and '70s, uh, and I mean, we could talk about the uh, we could talk about the live action features, but goodness knows, I don't have any idea what any of them are, uh, and the ones I've seen, I don't like. So it's it's crazy to me that he puts so much energy into the live action movies, which are almost entirely forgotten. Yeah, Herbie the yeah. Love Bug. I- that must be the same. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think so. I, mean, I was reading through the list. I mean, there's it's like, I mean, there's a couple that I was familiar with. Um, Swiss Family Robinson. Oh right. Uh, which uh, somebody wrote about that on Christian Humanist the uh, the website, right? Did we? Um, I think I know that I when I so. went
0: to Disney World with the Grubbses, the thing David was most excited to see was the Swiss Family Robinson treehouse, which is kind of the perfect distillation of who David Grubbs is.
1: Yeah. Oh, you know what? I think it wasn't. I think I'm confusing in my head. Like maybe it was Robinson Crusoe or something. Anyway, um, yeah, not neither here nor there. But yeah, um, the, the what's it called? The absent-minded Professors, the Sarah, the Shaggy Dog. Most um, of,
0: most of these I think par- are better known to to people our age from the remakes in the nineties.
1: Right. Well, and that's the interesting thing, right? Like as you were just talking about the the Disney theme parks. Like I wonder if there's more of a jungle book presence now since the movie the live action movie is recent you know yeah that's
0: an interesting question i don't i don't know i haven't i don't think i've been since that movie came out
1: yeah i mean i don't know and that's interesting too just in this movie i mean this movie didn't it was it was a forerunner to that craze right um was the the glenn close version in the 90s i think uh, which I,
0: I think my first date, no, it was my second date, was to uh, the Glen Close Hundred One Dalmatians.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I I don't know, like I I it, that that one seems far enough removed from all these live action remakes that I wouldn't be surprised if there's another Hundred One Dal- Dalmatians remake in the works. Like, you know what I mean? Oh, good. Like, it, I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I don't want it. I'm just saying that, like. I, even though, like, yeah, they're they're remaking everything. Like, it seems like that was that was a trial run or something. That it seems it seems separated in some way from this this recent just deluge of of constant remakes.
0: We took my niece to see Mary Poppins Returns a few days ago, and uh, I was subjected to the trailers for the live action Dumbo and the quote unquote live action. Lion King. Right. And I thought, oh, thank God I have an excuse not to see these.
1: (laughs) That's a whole other thing, too, right? Like that they're actually animated movies and not live action. But yeah, we don't need to we don't need to keep going down this road. This is not. Yeah. (laughs) We're before they were live, right?
0: That's right. Um, We should actually talk about 101 Dalmatians at some point.
1: We should. Yeah. Yeah. Let's jump into it. I think we. Yeah, I think we've we're We've hit the the high points on the technology and art stuff. So, well, I the main person I really want to talk about in this movie is Cruella DeVille. Should we do her first or should okay. we do her last?
0: Absolutely. Let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about Cruella. The, the movie's oh, lasting legacy in some ways.
1: Yeah, just so brilliant. I just I love everything about her. I mean, not <laughs> that that sounds funny. Um, she's a great villain. Yeah. Villainess. Huge. Yeah. Yes. Huge is exactly the word. Like she she owns every scene that she's in. She just she's she's just a force to be reckoned with, like just um takes over every scene.
0: She's evil in a very petty way. Like I love the way she's constantly taking cracks at Roger's songwriting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and
1: she's got ninety nine puppies that she's bought herself, but she's gonna steal these
0: fifteen, you know, like yeah extremely petty well you can't um, you can't make a code out of uh, eighty six I think she has
1: <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, that's right yeah yeah, yeah, you're right, sorry I did my my math wrong there um yeah so, just the, just on the animation side, I, I mentioned it earlier a little bit, like, Mark Davis animated her and, and she is just, I, I think she's just the greatest thing. Like, the, the, the contrast between herself being completely skinny and, but then having this huge puff around her, um, with, with her furs, um, or, or the huge vehicle around her, you know? Mm hmm. Um, and then just the way that all those, like, all those parts move, you know? Like, the way she just, like, like as she moves, like, the, the furs just sway and puff, and I, it's just, it's really just lovely animation, I think. It's very, really. it's very
0: fluid, and yeah, and and she somehow seems human and inhuman at the same time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's just, she's a wonder. Um, I think, I, so I was, I was trying to think about what sort of um, archetype <laughs> she would fit, you know. Um there's something about her that's just very um again, this goes back to uh oh what's his name? Uh the uh why liberalism failed. Patrick. Uh, Patrick Deneen.
0: Deneen.
1: Oh, Denine. yeah, Denine. Um that, that book's really stuck with me and I keep thinking about it. But like this idea of um detaching yourself from nature um but needing to like conquer nature and also like um I don't know, put on the um like she's she's wrapped herself in nature in a way right like in the fur but it's obviously completely detached from actual real nature because you have to kill it to to do that and then she's just a um yeah just uh you see it in the she doesn't want to uh you know she wants immediate like results like she doesn't want to wait for the the actual birth process to happen um she doesn't want to wait for the spots to grow like she's you know like she's like very demanding of of this nature and all completely for her own good and then at the same time she's just an absolute pollutant yeah everywhere she goes like i mean she's a she's a noise pollutant on her horn and with her car i'm sure her car is you know not Carbon safe or whatever, but like, and her voice don't
0: don't forget that she has a incredibly yeah, it's her voice. voice it's
1: it's the smoking and it's not just the smoking like it's not just like the green haze that that surrounds her but then like she you know she uses a, a cupcake as an ashtray you know like <laughs> she's just she is just a pollutant is like yeah so that's
0: that's all I got I don't know what you, what you have on that she's so incredibly shameless about it too like there's no there's no sort of reflection in her. There's no quiet moments in her life, everything. Even when she fails, her first response is to yell, you imbeciles. <laughs> Which, to be fair, her henchmen are imbeciles, but uh, she, she's, uh, she's really something. I, I, I think um, the person, and this is going to sound weird, uh, the person she most clearly resembles in the canon so far is, uh, what's Cinderella's stepmother's name? Uh, I forget. I do too.
1: <laughs> uh, I I'm like, oh, I know, but I, yeah, I can't All I can think
0: of is Madame Obane, and I know that's not true. So, so that that's who she um that's who she seems most like to me. Except that Madame Obane or whatever whatever the heck her name is, is um is very quiet and stoic, and and is just so loud about it. But their their pettiness seems very similar to me. Uh, Cinderella's stepmother is yeah. just much smarter. Than yeah. Corella is.
1: <laughs> they both have the throne of a bed, right? That they're mm-hmm. like in at one point. So I think that's a really, yeah, that really interesting parallel.
0: There's that great shot of her. She's on the phone and she's laughing in bed and kicking her legs. That's a that's a great that's a great shot.
1: Yeah, it's it's just wonderful. Like, she's just so wonderfully animated. I really, I really <laughs> you know, love it. You
0: know, she eventually dies because she drops a cigarette in bed and burns herself to death. <laughs> you, know, you know that's yeah. how Cruella Deville goes <laughs> That's
1: that's how the, That's the end of 102 Dalmatians Or whatever the name that sequel
0: <laughs> I will say this though What are her parents thinking naming her Cruella What do they think is going to happen
1: <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up Because I was really, I was thinking that there is There is something about names Um And this can be a broader discussion beyond 101 Dalmatians But like uh, There is something in the power of names right And so like I know that um yeah <laughs> what were her parents thinking is is uh probably you know not what the author had in mind as <laughs> they're you know writing the story and they just want you know somebody named like this but um i did i did really think about this idea of like well what would uh people who have these horrible sort of names and i don't i don't know like there's a there's like a lasting impact that you have have from your name and it actually reminded me I, this this i don't know if this will be really weird or not but like what it reminded me of was there's this passage in revelation uh in in chapter two where um jesus is talking to you know the church and says for the ones who overcome i'm gonna i'm gonna give them a white stone with a new name on it and it'll it'll be a new name that that only the owner of the stone knows and i just i don't know there's something like so beautiful in that like that christ gives us this new name that's that's more true to who we really are um, that that's always really struck me, and I thought, man, Cruella needs that. Right? Yeah, if
0: only Cruella, Cruella could her. overcome.
1: She, well, she needs her. Yeah. she needs the gift of her
0: true name. You know, like, um,
1: yeah, that would be her redemption arc.
0: Oh, don't don't give them any ideas for the the next live action remake. <laughs>
1: I don't. I don't mean it in that way. I don't a want to a story, that.
0: A, a version of Hundred One Dalmatians <laughs> where Cruella De Vil is sympathetic,
1: right? Yeah. Uh, oh, it, it could happen, right? Like, wasn't that the whole Maleficent thing? I don't know. If I never saw it,
0: but I didn't see it either. You, yeah. you know, it, it reminds me of Goofus and Gallant. Do you ever? Do you remember Goofus and Gallant from Highlights magazine?
1: <laughs> I don't, I remember Highlights magazine. I don't remember Goofus and Gallant. It taught
0: it taught children manners essentially, and Gallant would always do the right thing, and Goofus would always do the wrong thing. And I always thought, uh yeah, you named him Goofus. You, you, you know what I mean? Like uh you're the one who decided to call him that. What did you expect yeah. was going to happen? <laughs> right maybe maybe he's always doing the wrong thing because he feels terrible about himself because his parents (laughs) named him goofus
1: yeah and there is that i don't i don't know like that does seem to be kind of a common children's literature trope at least you know that the the villain or the the hero is named named in such a way they kind of play in, the, in a funny way in this movie. The when they go to visit the cows, and the cows are all named Princess and Duchess and Queenie. And, <laughs> although the cows are very heroic in this movie. So.
0: Yeah, they really are. It's nice to see heroic cows. That's a that's a very <laughs> sweet scene. The uh, when the when the puppies are freezing to death and starving, and the the cows offer their services, as it were. Yeah, I
1: was I, in that scene in particular. I don't know if you have more on the name thing, but um, on the on that scene, like the you know they're greeted by the collie, and it's it's such a moment, like because they're they're just dying out there in the in the cold trying it's like a to get death home. Death
0: march. It's really a disturbing shot.
1: It really is. It's really bad. And then you know the collie just comes, you know, bounding through the snow, like just kind of a beyond it, you know, like he's he's not cold, so it's not as big a deal to him. And then. Invites them in. It really, uh I don't know. To to me, it was it was like the Rivendell moment, you know, like the like Collies, like Elrond, you know, like. Um, I know you know you're not a big Lord of the Rings person, but <laughs> I'm sure some of, of our idea. listeners at
0: least <laughs> would <will> get that.
1: <laughs> yeah, they just yeah, just that that peace and comfort in the midst of this this terrible trial.
0: Yeah, I, I I'm actually very moved this time through by the actions of all the other dogs, these dogs who don't know them, um, who, who just want to help and who, who risk certain things by helping not probably not their lives, but you know, bad things could happen to them for what they're doing. And they're clearly giving up food. And uh, I don't know. I I was really moved by that. It made me think of the resistance during world war two. I don't know that this is a direct reference to that, but, um, that's this this underground network of strangers who take care of themselves or take care of one another rather, um, because they can't take care of themselves. Or uh, the underground railroad, maybe, which I guess it also yeah. has certain similarities to.
1: Yeah, I I see that too. I really um yeah I love that. I love the the whole idea of the twilight bark and then, you know, all these dogs getting involved and. Um, that's a really lovely scene too, you know, like they think no one's going to hear and, you know, Roger's trying to pull, pull him in, but you know, he finally gets the word out just to one dog. But then from, from there it lights up the whole city and then of course gets all the way out to the countryside. And I think you're right. Like the, the dogs that come across the most noble in this movie are the Collie, the Labrador, the, um, the Great box Dane. hound or the Great Dane. Yeah. Sorry. The Great Dane and, uh, whatever. Okay. Whatever the
0: colonel is, he's a <laughs> you know? sheepdog, right? He's, An English sheepdog. Yeah, I guess so. And of course, I mean, the, and of course, Sergeant Tibbs. Let's not. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's not discount the cat. <laughs> let's not. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. One of the best
1: scenes in the movie when the cat is firing the uh, the the horse the horses.
0: <laughs> Ready, fire, one. He pulls on the pulls on the ear, and just, I like it. I like it when Jasper thinks the cat is the bottle of wine and tries to drink it <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah that's also uh, an excellent moment there's a lot of excellent moments with sergeant Tibbs. sergeant Tibbs is, is definitely a hero in this movie
0: yeah and and another interesting thing is there's all these different dogs and the, the this isn't so much true of the puppies but all the adult dogs have their own personality they're, they're very distinguishable uh, a few of the puppies are, but what are you going to do? How are you going to have 101 different personalities? Most yeah. of them, the vast majority of them, don't even get names.
1: Yeah. You get the one who likes TV and the one who likes to eat. And <laughs> yeah, the, the, one who... the fat one and
0: Lucky, who's the one who almost died, of course. That's why he's Lucky. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. And then... Uh,
0: Patch is the one with the, the black eyes. Yeah,
1: Patch. Yeah, the one with the foul mouth.
0: <laughs> Freckles. Penny. Those are two of the girl dogs. Yeah. Uh, did They're you notice cute. that the boy dogs were red and the girl dogs were blue?
1: I I I wasn't sure if that was entirely true. I I thought that I mean that was the the pattern I was picking up on, but I wasn't sure if it was if it was uh, universally true or not.
0: I, it, it's interesting because um, pink wasn't a girl's color. So after this movie came out, so you you can kind of see the remnants of the old system where pink pink was for little boys because it was light red. Huh.
1: That's interesting and why why the red?
0: I uh, I don't know. Why why anything, right? I mean the, oh, the yeah, it's, true. it's completely <laughs> <Why> arbitrary. <laughs> yeah, it's, but now, I mean it's I it's that. funny to think of now cuz if they made this movie now all the girls would be wearing bright pink collars cuz that's
1: yeah, the, definitely.
0: The, the colors Disney has convinced little girls to like.
1: Right. It threw my girls off a little bit actually. They were trying to figure out which one were the girls and which one of the boys. So I told them that that the boys were in red and the girls were in blue and they accepted that fine. But uh, then after I said it, one of the one of the puppies with the red collar spoke and sounded, you know, I mean, little kids, like, it's hard to tell, right? Like sometimes like, is that a boy voice or a girl voice? So so then I was like, Oh, maybe I I'm not sure if that was a girl voice or a boy voice.
0: Yeah. I I don't know that they're entirely consistent about it. Did your kids like the movie?
1: They did. I wanted to get some audio of them, but I, I failed to do that. So. That's you, one of these you days. You shouldn't
0: be exploiting <laughs> your children for this show, anyway. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know.
1: Yeah. But one of these days, it might be fun to, to hear their opinions on stuff.
0: Had they seen the movie before?
1: They hadn't. This was our first first time watch through with them on that one. So.
0: Were they afraid well, of Cruella?
1: They did, they did really well, actually. <laughs> it was surprising. Um, because, yeah, so to get back to 101 One Dalmatians, like the scene where they're watching the TV and, you know, all the. The puppies are responding in, in slightly different ways to to it, um, and there's you know the ones who are really afraid and and stuff. Like we definitely have, one of our one of our girls is she's just endlessly frightened by things, but she did she did pretty well on this one. Unlike the Little Mermaid, we did the Little Mermaid a couple weeks ago, and that was that was a disaster.
0: Well, I think Ursula is much scarier than Cruella De Vil. Cruella De Vil is almost too ridiculous to be scary. Yeah, but but I don't know. I'm not a kid, and there is that scene where her eyes go crazy when she's driving a car. Yeah, (laughs) so I could I could see a child being afraid of it. I don't don't remember being afraid of her, but I don't remember being afraid of Ursula, for example, either.
1: Yeah, it's funny. It's it's not. It's never the things you expect. You know, like I mean, different people are just afraid of different things, I guess. But like with the kids, like I'm I'm always surprised on what you know what gets her and what doesn't like as far as like the tension and stuff like yeah because there's definitely some tense parts in this movie but it didn't bother but yeah i was going to ask you about the television watching actually the uh the um is there if you had anything to say on that like we're we're watching like we're watching a movie of them watching a a a show you know and like we, we see a fair bit of this tv show twice in this
0: movie <laughs> uh, two shows right
1: yeah we see the well the dogs watch the dog show and, then <laughs> and the, the criminals watch and the criminal criminals watch, <laughs> the show. watch the
0: criminal show <laughs> so the dog shows a parody of ren 1010 right
1: <laughs> i assume so
0: let me ask you a question i i noticed this the last time i watched the movie and i've never gotten an answer to it Is that a dog or a man in a dog suit? Because if you look at at Shadow, who's the the heroic dog on the TV show, I'm motioning with my hands as if anybody could see me. He has, it looks like a seam that goes just over the top of his chest. And I wonder, I found myself wondering if it was supposed to be a man wearing a dog's head. (laughs) I never noticed that.
1: Can so we I'll explain to how they got the it.
0: dog to do facial motions? Yeah,
1: yeah, well, or it's like a it's like a bolt type thing.
0: Yeah, that's true. To to talk about a movie that'll come along much later. Yeah, um, what's my crime is of course a parody of what's my line, uh, a, a British panel show from this era, and what's my crime is to me the funniest thing in the whole movie. The idea yeah. apparently <laughs> being that this friend of Jasper and Horace's. <laughs> has committed some sort of absurd crime and if the uh if the panel fails to guess what it is with, within 10 questions he'll be given a luxury vacation after he's done serving his sentence <laughs> there's all these there's all these moments where he gets very excited and then he looks over and the guard <laughs> who's with him uh kind of shakes his head at him it's such he puts a great pat on his shoulder yeah
1: <laughs> yeah it's a wonderful moment, yeah. So I just, yeah, I think I it, it just, I it just struck me as kind of funny that here we are watching a movie of of somebody else watching a movie, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, especially that television meta about it, which at, at this time was still seen as a real threat to movies.
1: Yeah, and it's all in black and white,
0: you know, <laughs>
1: like in the midst of the color, like like we're watching the color movie, but the the television shows mm-hmm. are in black and white, so. Kind of interesting and funny. The uh <laughs> the announcer or on the on the dog on the dog show um, um when Pongo turns the TV off he reacts <laughs> real quick before he blinks out <laughs> like how dare you <laughs> <It's> really... <laughs> I didn't notice
0: that that's funny <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah and you get the on
0: Crispies the... ad too
1: yeah yeah and uh yeah I love the the nice touch on that like when the TV goes off it's like the you know it goes down to the circle and like blinks off like the the old television monitors used to do Cruella De DeVille
2: Cruella De DeVille if she doesn't scare you no evil thing will oh, to Roger. see her is to take a sudden chill oh. Cruella Cruella she's like a spider waiting for the kill Roger Look she'll hear you Cruella DeVille At first you think Cruella is a devil But after time has worn away the shock You come to realize You've seen her kind of eyes Watching you from underneath a rock You're no help, This vampire bat This inhuman beast She ought to be locked up and never released. The world was such a wholesome place until. Cruella, Cruella DeVille.
0: Uh, the big the big song is Cruella DeVille, which uh, Roger writes as a way of bothering his wife, and then it <laughs> becomes a hit very, very quickly. Did you notice that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he wrote, a real the, he wrote <laughs> the song. Two weeks later, the dogs are born. Uh... Corella steals them apparently very quickly.
1: Yeah, but after they got their spot, so there's another couple weeks there.
0: Okay, so maybe maybe it's a couple months after he wrote it, Cause, but the dogs are only gone for like three days, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, maybe the maybe the turnaround was quicker in 1961.
1: Yeah, I don't know, but it's a great song, really great song.
0: Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's you know one of the favorites I would say. Nobody remembers the other song from this movie, Dalmatian Plantation. Maybe yeah. because it's not very good. <laughs> yeah. It's got a lot of rhymes in it. But, yeah, Cruella Deville's a great song. And I, I'm not a lawyer, but I did find myself wondering if she would be able to sue them for defamation of character.
1: <laughs> That's so funny. My wife asked the same question during the movie while we were watching
0: it. <laughs> You could just
1: write that about somebody, could you?
0: Could you imagine turning on a radio and there's somebody singing a song about how you you're an insect living under a rock, you by name. <laughs> and she yeah. already has anger control issues. You know what I mean? You know, maybe she's not well known.
1: Like maybe um you know, it seems like her family fortunes have gone downhill. Like they've got this old mansion that's all decrepit and stuff.
0: Hell Hall. You know,
1: maybe she's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, really subtly named. No wonder they named her Cruella. Um,
0: not not known for the subtlety in that family. Um, then again, if she sued them, no. they could just be like, uh, "Okay, well, we're bringing a criminal suit against you for stealing our puppies."
1: <laughs> That's one of my favorite scenes too, is when they're on the phone with her, and uh, and Roger just grabs the phone and yells, "Where are they?"
0: <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> who else is gonna steal them? Right. But the the, human beings are totally helpless, right? Like the, the police can't do anything (laughs) against her. They have to, um, it, it takes the dog, the twilight bark to do anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, wonderful song. And it really, it shows, I think, uh, Roger and Anita's like relationship comes out so, so nicely there. Like Roger's clearly pretty passive aggressive sort of guy. um, you know, doing, but in a very playful way. Like it, it's it's really fun.
0: Yeah, their their relationship is pretty cute, and they have the meet cute at the beginning that Pongo orchestrates. Yes, and they apparently get married very quickly.
1: Yeah.
0: But yeah, their their relationship is fun. She calls him an idiot twice, which is uh, which <laughs> which is interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, very playfully though. Yeah. Playfully, the first time playfully, the second time maybe she's actually a little more irritated. Um, but, yeah, I think the uh, – yeah, just the – it really – it works well because, you know, you, you see him being pretty – like he, he escapes up the stairs to his little uh, – you know his little studio room when gorilla comes like, he doesn't want to interact with her and he's playing the song the whole time so that that Anita knows <laughs> that he knows but you know Cruella obviously doesn't but then uh, you know so then that sets it up nicely when he stands up to her when you know after the puppies are born and she's willing to offer as much money as they want for him and and he obviously has a hard time doing it gorilla um, calls him a bashful Beethoven I think
0: yeah bashful Beethoven.
1: <laughs> it's pretty good. But, yeah, I, I think it's it's really nicely done.
0: The other thing I wanted to talk about was Jasper and Horace.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that.
0: <laughs> we watched
1: Home Alone <laughs> and last their week. car. You have to watch Jasper, Horace, and their car, like because their car really is like a third character to them. <laughs> so we wonderful. watched uh, Home Alone
0: <laughs> last week because it's Christmas, and uh, I, I had to. I, I started to wonder if Jasper and Horace were kind of proto Harry and Marv
1: yeah I get that same yeah I think well yeah is there
0: other kind of dumb criminal <laughs> pairs prior to this probably i I can't imagine that a hundred and one Dalmatians invented it uh but they are kind of the ultimate examples right they're they're um what's interesting is they're not just stupid they're also really uh really kind of venal and uh wicked they really are bad guys they're not just her idiot henchmen sometimes you get henchmen who don't have any particular ill will themselves these guys have ill will especially jasper like they're they're pretty rough guys um in addition to being complete idiots they also mm-hmm. speak in cockney slang which is interesting so it, it's difficult sometimes to understand what they mean because they use this, uh, they use this slang. I'm trying to remember. He throws the bottle at the portrait of Corella's ancestor, and he says, "Watch me, watch me, cog the lo- his lordship straighten the conch. <laughs> 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 something like that. That line's always made me yeah. laugh. So there's a class issue here. You have um, you have a very wicked upper class aristocracy, Corella Deville, a very wicked underclass, uh, Horace and Jasper, and then you have. The kind of virtuous middle class of Roger and Anita. So I think that's an interesting, that's um, an interesting dynamic that it's never really anything more than hinted at.
1: Yeah. That is really interesting. The, the virtuous middle class, <laughs> like I never, I didn't think about it that way. Um, I did. I, as you were talking, I was thinking it's kind of, it's kind of nice that it's like, you know, there's, you know, evil at all levels of, of society, but you're right, the, the middle class doesn't, we don't have any examples of evil there.
0: Oh, you can't have everything.
1: <clears throat> yeah. But really, the dogs are the most virtuous. I mean, uh, yeah, Anita and Roger are not, are really kind of neither, you know, like, in some ways.
0: It's the dog's movie. Yeah. So. It's a dog's world. Yeah. There's that. There's that great shot, um, ba- basically a, a boom shot of of London, and all these dogs are barking, and even the neon lights are advertising canine crunchies. That's right. <laughs> so, so it's this, just this city of dogs.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and just in the, that opening scene, you know, you get all the the dogs that match their humans. It's really really lovely. So.
0: Uh, Roger and Anita and Pongo and Perdita—they don't really—they don't really match, except I guess Anita and Perdita rhyme.
1: Yeah, well, Roger and Pongo match when uh, when Cruella spills the ink all over him.
0: That's true. Yeah, <laughs> she shakes her fountain pen.
1: Yeah, yeah, and they're obviously very closely attached like they they dance the same way and they
0: <laughs> uh, I love to watch them dance like that's, 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 that's I think it happens twice and it's just wonderful
1: yeah it's really nice and they I don't know seeing them sit together like in the you know upstairs while while Perdita's having the babies and I don't know there's, there's just a lot of really good Roger and Pongo moments in this movie I think you see their connection much more than Perdita and Anita
0: Yeah, but both Perdita and Anita are unfortunately kind of afterthoughts in this movie. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah.
0: Pongo is the important dog character. Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah.
0: Did you know that in the book, uh, Sergeant Tibbs is a female?
1: I did not know that. I didn't read the book. Have you read it?
0: Oh. (laughs) But I read that. So it's interesting, (laughs) given, given the kind of afterthought given to Anita and Perdita. It's interesting that they actually took a female character and made her male.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. I don't know what it means, though.
0: I, I don't either. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we covered a lot, I think.
0: Yeah, I'm looking through my notes know, to see if there's anything.
1: Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to say on Horse and
0: Jasper? We kind of skipped off of them quickly. I didn't mean to. Just that th- I think they're hysterical. And, I mean, this is pretty typical of this sort of comedy pair. Jasper's the leader. Jasper is ostensibly the smarter one. But Horace is actually the one who predicts everything the dogs are going to do. And uh, <laughs> Jasper ignores him every time he says it. So right. Jasper I think thinks like is... horse thinks like a dog.
1: <laughs> yeah. That is one thing that uh, we should maybe touch on real quick is just the – is there something in here about that? Like, you know, the dogs disguise themselves and um, when it's like Cruella sees it and she, she's figuring it out and it's a lovely little scene. Um, The music is great in that part too. You know, like the, the snow is melting and falling onto the dogs in time with the music. It's really nice. Uh, But she's looking in her, her rear view mirror and she's watching all this and she's saying, it's impossible, which is really what you would think, right? Particularly like, if this is meant to be set in basically our world, right? Like if the, <laughs> whatever the dog's name on TV is, a, is a guy in a dog suit, like you said, you know, like you wouldn't expect dogs to act this way and to think this way and to be this clever. And so I, I don't know. I think that, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that means, but I, I just thought it was really interesting. There's like this, this crossover, this like sort of magical moment, you know, where we get, um, because you know, we've seen this in other movies where animals have this inner life that that humans aren't privy to but in this movie there there's just that one moment where they kind of you know they do cross paths or almost like I mean Roger and Anita have to deal with it at some point too you know like they just celebrate when the dogs show up but like how do they you know I'm sure later when they're laying in bed or whatever they gotta be questioning like now wait a second how did <laughs> our dogs run away and then come back with 99 puppies you know
0: where'd all these other dogs come from yeah um so horace seems to be the only major character who understands that he's in a cartoon yeah whereas jasper and cruella um seem to think that seem to live in the real world in a weird way even though they're more cartoonish than horace is
1: yeah yeah i don't know that struck me as really interesting this time this this viewing It kind of goes back to that idea that we've been you know um floating around for a long time of like enchantment and stuff, you know, like this idea that oh maybe maybe there is something more there um it's in a it's in a slightly different way in this one than than what we've talked about before, but
0: maybe it's just a matter of being stupid <laughs> 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 maybe
1: <laughs> that's not a very charitable way to look at it, but sure, um yeah. No major, other than Cruella de Ville, no, no big numbers in this one, which is kind of different than what we've what we've seen so far.
0: And I think that's going to be the pattern going forward, that there's only going to be a song or two in each movie rather than a, a basically being a musical. I think yeah. that's all. Oh, the Jungle Book has a lot of music, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, Sword in the Stone does too.
0: Does it? I remember Mad Men and Mim.
1: Yeah, and Higgly Piggly, Piggly Puff or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the, the packing the packing song. And then uh the one that gets stuck in my head all the time is uh when they when they turn into fish.
0: Oh right. It's I guess the, there is a the, lot of music in that Two movie. And
1: throw, stop and go. Yeah.
0: Maybe so. the music never stops. I don't know. I I had this impression that at a certain point they stop making musicals. But I
1: guess Well, this is they're definitely not as much musicals as I think, I mean, there's the, uh, I don't know, the era that we grew up in is definitely when the movies are being much more, like, they're much more Broadway-style musicals, right? Like, nothing we've seen so far has really that, either,
0: you know? They just got a song or two here or there. Yeah, and so. I think maybe the first decade of the 21st century, those movies don't have a lot of music in them. Mm-hmm. But the less said about those movies, the better.
1: <laughs> well, anyway, before we get there, we will be on Sword in the Stone next month, which uh, will be special.
0: Yeah, we'll have a special guest next month, Coyle Neal from the City of Man podcast. Almost as soon as we started this podcast, he asked if he could come on to talk about Sword in the Stone. So uh, he's getting his wish, our first male guest. How exciting. Yeah. I am I am really excited. I'm, I'm, I'm excited
1: to see what he brings to this, so... Um. And that's a that's a fun movie, too, so
0: I have not seen it in in quite a while, so um, I don't really remember that much about it, but uh I look forward to talking to you and Coyle about it
1: all right. Well, Michael and I know that there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for choosing us. We also want you to know that Before They Were Live is a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you can find new and interesting shows just about every day of the week. Our press week, our press liaison is Christian Philippic, and please help us continue this conversation by emailing us at beforetheywerelive at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter. I'm at the underscore alt, and Michael is at Michael Farmer. And so for Michael Farmer, I'm Josh Albanshofer reminding you to do what all the smart dogs do and you'll feel great the whole day through.